Lord God, you have given us in Scripture your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit will be with our reading, our proclamation, be with our imaginations and our minds. Open us, Lord, to what you would have us hear. In Jesus' name and to his glory, amen. Well, the sermon this morning is um, from a piece of scripture in the life of David. And this particular passage is about David and Bathsheba. And the story of King David and Bathsheba is, well, we all know it. It's probably the, one of the stories in the Bible that could probably get an R rating if it were a movie. It is also one of the diciest to preach. So I, I ask your um, thoughtful presence with me. I'm going to have the scripture read in just a moment, but I want to give you a little background. At the time of the story, David has been king for 20 years. And after two decades of constant fighting, his kingdom is finally secure. His life goals have been achieved. There's really no one left to conquer. Nothing more to prove. And this is actually kind of a sad time for David because, you know, when you're at the peak of your career, where do you have to go? Okay. Well, it's springtime. And scripture will tell us spring is the time when kings go off to war. But as David's general Joab and the troops march out to mop up what's left of the Ammonites, David, King David, stays behind. Why? You know, maybe to uh, catch a few rounds of golf and a, a nap in the afternoon? We are meeting David at midlife. It's not so much of a challenging time to him anymore. There's no one to talk to or really to hold him accountable. No agenda for him but his own pleasure. And it so happens one afternoon, he is looking down from his rooftop garden, and he sees a woman bathing. Hmm. Billy Graham once said, It's not the first look that leads to sin. It's the second. And David is already there because he can't take his eyes off of this woman. We're going to hear the rest of the story in 2 Samuel. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go forth to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, and David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking upon the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she was purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am with child. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Send Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there was valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite was slain also. And, and the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich men had many flocks and herds, 
But the poor man had nothing but one little lamb, one ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. From the beginning, we know that this is a story that's going to make us cringe. I want you to take a moment and ask yourself, how is it that God keeps keeping faith with King David? I mean, this is the one we've known from, you know, he was a shepherd boy. The story of him killing Goliath. David will be the one who will be the father of Solomon. David will be the one whose house and lineage, or from whose house and lineage, the Lord will come. How is it that God keeps keeping faith with David? David is thoroughly compromised in terms of his behavior. And if we define sin, among other ways, as satisfying our own interests, our own desires, that are contrary to living into that image of God that is within us, this guy, David, is thoroughly, I mean, he's got an industrial case of being in sin. He finds out that this gorgeous woman is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. He sends for her. He starts an affair with her. She winds up pregnant, but he's king, so no problem. He calls her husband home from the front, ostensibly to report on the battle, but David hopes that he's going to sleep with his wife before he returns, but Uriah won't take the bait. His men are out there embattled and, under, and living under horrible conditions, and there's no way David is going to find privilege for himself. Well, that plan didn't work, so David instructs Uriah's commander to put Uriah in the front lines of the battle where Uriah is killed. You know, way back in the story of David, when David is on the run from the king who was, well, from King Saul. David was on the run in the wilderness. There were a group of men that gathered around him that became David's mighty men. Those folks were Hittites. One of them was probably Uriah. This is a man to whom David owes his life. And what does David do in return? He covets his wife. He steals her, commits adultery with her, then he murders Uriah, then he lies to cover it up. I mean, folks, that is a good, you know, six of the Ten Commandments broken in one sleazy move. This David yet, as we learned in the children's message, yet this David is the man who wrote most of the Psalms. A man who said, I desire, O God, to do your will with all my heart. David and David. You know, what does this tell us? We look at the life of David. We use it in sermons and in teaching because David is like all of us. 
David is like all of us, and there are lessons there. I think what the story says is that if David could do this, maybe we could do it too. It tells us that, you know, the seeds of the most terrible betrayals and atrocities lie within the human heart, even the hearts of people who are wholly devoted to God. You know, most of us reject the idea that we're all capable of evil. It's always possible in someone else's heart, not ours. You know, in the early days of the Second World War, the British and American leaders dismissed the Holocaust, saying, you know, surely a culture that brought us Mozart and Bach could not commit mass murder. Not our enlightened civilization. We're not capable of that. Ooh. (laughs) The London Times invited several eminent authors to write on the theme, What's Wrong with the World? And G.K. Chesterton, who was an English philosopher, wrote in and he said, Dear sirs, I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. We say, well, I could never do what David did. You're right. Maybe you couldn't do what David did. But sin still sits in there. The seeds of, of evil are in our hearts. You know, and that acorn can grow into this huge oak tree. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but give you a minute to look into your own hearts. Do you see any self-pity? Any resentment? Is there any envy? Any jealousy? Any hurt pride? Any self-centeredness? What if those things hit fertile soil? What if you find yourself in a community of friends who say, you go with that feeling, you act out on it. It gets enough water, it gets enough light, it gets enough nutrition. Whoa, you never know where that seed's going to grow. Got to be working it, living against evil. We are all vulnerable. And you know what David was experiencing was a you know, pretty potent inclination. And I do believe that our daydreams... Our fantasies, our, our dreams of revenge, you know, when we lick our chops thinking of what we're going to say to somebody to just slay them with our words. We are as human as he is. But you know, instead of this, you know, Nathan storming in with a thunderous accusation, what did David get? He got Nathan calmly coming in before the king and saying, <clears throat> I would like your opinion on a judicial matter. Now, David was expected, in addition to being a ruler, David was expected to be a great judge. So as his part of, part of his job, he listens to Nathan. He listens to Nathan describe a story involving two men. One was rich, one was poor. The rich man had lots of sheep and cattle, and the poor man had this one little lamb that he, you know, took into his home and held to his bosom. Well, the rich man received a traveler. And in the custom of the time, when you have a traveler come in, you, you provide them food, you give them a shelter. But the rich man didn't want to foot the bill himself, so he took the poor man's little lamb, mm, killed it, cooked it, and served it to the traveler. And Nathan asks David, so what is to be done with the rich man? And David gives his verdict, part of which is in accord with Mosaic law. The rich man is to pay back the lamb four times. 
That's what the law says. If you rob or you cheat someone, you're made to make a fourfold restitution. But the rest of the story that Chris read said that David's anger burned against the man, and as surely as the Lord lives, this man also deserves to die. Well, that's excessive because Mosaic law does not say that stealing and killing a lamb is a capital offense. But David's furious, and he adds to the punishment, and you wonder why. It didn't take me too long. Maybe you've noticed that sometimes when you've done something clearly gut-wrenching, wrong, and you know it, and you don't want anybody else to know about it, you try to cover it up by being sort of super moral and righteous in some other area of your life. Somebody over there is laughing. Thank you. David was king, and that meant that he was supposed to dispense justice. He was supposed to protect the interests of people, but his conscience is killing him. And as he listens to Nathan, I think this urge to compensate, to overcompensate, to prove himself a righteous man just comes up. And all of that pent-up guilt comes out in the explosion of saying, Who is this man? And right there, Nathan has him and makes the most direct application of a sermon to an audience in history when he says, You are the man. I want you to notice this line comes not at the beginning of Nathan's speech, but at the end. Does that tell you anything? Why didn't Nathan just burst into David's quarters and say, you liar, you murderer, you adulterer, I know what you've done. Why didn't Nathan do that? Because Nathan is practicing a whole lot of grace. The grace of God that says, when there is any hope of change, when there is any hope of change, God goes for conviction and conversion, not condemnation. Grace never condemns a person in such a way that it crushes them. Even if that's sometimes what we want to do, that's not God's way. It is so easy to confront somebody angrily. And when we do that, we just raise their defenses so high they're never going to cop to their guilt, much less repent. I want you to think about John chapter 3, verse 17. Not verse 16, but the one after it. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Not to condemn us for our sins, but to save us, to save us, to bring us into a place where we can be whole with God now. Nathan was practicing that kind of grace. We see him trying to disarm David, trying to get him to lower those defense mechanisms so that David can see what he has done, so that David can then own up to it and David can repent. And I think there's an example there for all of us. What about the last time you confronted somebody? A spouse, a friend, a child, a coworker? How'd you come across? Was there humility? Was there love? Or was there just anger and blame? You know, it's not enough sometimes to be right. Sometimes it takes grace and it takes skill to help somebody see the truth. And Nathan was very skilled. Nathan was not soft on David's menu of sin. But he was an agent of correction that told him about his sin in such a way that David had an opportunity 
to cop to it. David could repent. David could turn around and see things differently. You know, it's not printed in the, in the bulletin. But chapter 12, in verse 13, reads, David then said to Nathan, I have, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin, David. You are not going to die. The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. I don't have time to get into the tragic aftermath of the story of David and Bathsheba, but if, you, if you've read it, you know what I mean. And if you want to know more about David's repentance, take a look at Psalm 51. Create in me, O God, a clean heart. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. We are told that this is the psalm that David wrote after he was confronted by Nathan. That was David's response. But this morning, what I really want you to see is not what David did. I want you to see what God did. I want you to hear that promise, that promise of pardon that God gave through Nathan. The Lord has taken away your sin. Now think about it. David wasn't just guilty of adultery. He wasn't just guilty of murder. He had to have other soldiers sent out to battle with Uriah. That's group murder. David is king. David's job is to keep this kind of stuff from happening. And as far as I'm concerned, he's probably three times as guilty as any of us would ever be. And yet God comes to him and says, I have taken away your sin. You are not going to die. That's wild. It sounds awfully unfair. How can God assure David or any of us full pardon, no matter how badly we have sinned? Well, here's an answer. The Reverend Eugene Peterson wrote a great book on the life of David. It's called Leap Over a Wall, and I love the subtitle, Earthy Spirituality for Everyday Christians. And in a chapter on this story, Peterson says there is a remarkable verbal resonance in the story of David standing before Nathan and Jesus standing before Pilate. Nathan says of David, you are the man. Pilate says of Jesus, behold the man. Two courtrooms, one in Samuel, one in John 19. The courtroom of David and the courtroom of Pontius Pilate. In both courtrooms, people are in the wrong place. In 2 Samuel 12, there's a man who is in the seat to pronounce judgment. He really should be the accused. David the judge should be David the accused. And in Pilate's courtroom, the man accused, Jesus, should really be the judge. Well, God sends a prophet to rectify that first situation. In comes Nathan, and he says, you are the man. And suddenly, there's a turnaround. And the one who is on the judgment seat becomes the accused. The accused repents, and things are in their right order. But in Pilate's courtroom, nobody shows up to make it right. 
No prophet shows up and says to Pilate and the Sanhedrin, you're the man. And on the cross, nobody shows up. All we hear is Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he dies alone. The righteous, sinless judge of all of the earth for all generations stands condemned. And why? So that we Davids, when we repent, can receive forgiveness. Jesus, God incarnate, says, I know what you have done. I know what you are capable of doing, all of it. And I have not come to condemn you. I've come to begin, I have come to bring you an opportunity to start over, to bring you to wholeness. I died that you might know the measure of sacrifice. I died that you might know the judgment God is willing to take on God's self, on your behalf, so that nothing, nothing can stand between you and God's love. When you repent, when you and I when we cop to the fact that we have done evil, when we have done wrong, we are not earning our forgiveness. That forgiveness has already been earned for us on the cross. We are just accessing it with our repentance. Amen? You don't have to lug around that burden of sin anymore. You don't have to keep trying to pay for it in some way. In the work and the person of Jesus Christ, we are already forgiven. And like David we are made new every moment. That is the promise of Scripture. Every moment in Jesus Christ, we are cleansed. And you know why? So that we can grow into the likeness and the fullness of God. You know, that same opportunity that was there for David is there for all of us. I want to say to you, no matter what you have done, and some of us have done some horrible things, no matter what you have done, your debt is paid in Jesus Christ, and in repentance, you access that grace. You are called not to live to earn God's grace. You are called to live in grateful response to it. We never have to earn it. That's already been taken care of. It's been taken care of David. It's been taken care of Catherine. Fill in your own name. Thanks be to God.